Gaudium et Spes, the Second Vatican Council proclaimed the following, He who is the image of the invisible God is himself the perfect man. To the sons of Adam he restores the divine likeness which had been disfigured from the first sin onward. Since human nature, as he assumed it, was not annulled, by that very fact it has been raised up to a divine dignity in our respect too. For by his incarnation, the Son of God has united himself in some fashion with every man. He worked with human hands, he thought with a human mind, acted by human choice, and loved with a human heart. Born of the Virgin Mary, he has truly been made one of us, like us in all things except sin. That's the Second Vatican Council. My name is Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. We just heard from the document Gaudium et Spes about the great gift of the Incarnation. Within, there was mention of Adam and man's first sin. But what if Adam had not sinned? Would we have Jesus? Many would say with St. Augustine, if man had not sinned, the Son of Man would not have come. And I think after a while of sitting with this what-if question, we might arrive at another, perhaps better question. What was the primary motive for the Incarnation? Why, first and foremost, would God in the second person of the Most Holy Trinity assume our nature into His person, what we call the hypostatic union? And if you ask many a Christian this question today, you'd get the answer, because of sin to redeem us from our sin. But what if, contrary to this presently predominant answer, there was an alternative, perhaps more persuasive account, such that we could say, God intended the incarnation not first as a response to sin, but primarily to will the glory of the incarnate word and as a way of becoming most intimately united to his creation, in turn glorifying this creation. So that in light of this, we might say, yes, if Adam had not sinned, the Son of Man would still, nonetheless, have become incarnate. What a string of questions and hypotheticals. Now, much better than asking what would have happened if the, uh, if the Beatles had stayed together or something like that. Guiding us through all of this today, especially as regards the thought of John Dunn Scotus, but also Thomas Aquinas and quite a few others, is Justice Hunter who was Assistant Professor of Church History at United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. Justice is the author of a recently released book that is the focus of today's episode, that volume being named, If Adam Had Not Sinned, The Reason for the Incarnation from Anselm to Scotus, which is available from the Catholic University of America Press. And there's a link to the book in today's show notes, so definitely please go check it out once you finish this episode. Here's Justice talking about one of the things he learned studying the scholastic thinkers of the 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries. And I continue to be impressed by the ability, uh, two things when it comes to the scholastics. Um, one is their ability to, to understand their, their sense of how valuable it is to get the question right and to state it properly. Um, and I think there's something about the sort of comprehensive nature of the of an exercise like commenting on a sentence is, 
it generates the sense of what all the different concerns are and the different topics you're dealing with and how to pull the thing together. And so they have a profound sense that getting the question phrase just right uh, is really worth putting energy into. And one thing I saw in my study was that the, the question actually moves and migrates over time so that when, when Thomas brings a question up, you know, it's something like, it's the, the great counterfactual that, that I put on the front of the book to sell copies, you know, if Adam had not sinned, would the son have become incarnate, which is, which is uh, immensely attractive way to put the question. But I think Bonaventure and Scotus actually phrased the question more precisely and helpfully, which is to, to ask a question about the predestination of Christ um, and, mm-hmm. and, and how we think about the mystery of the incarnation in relationship to all the other wondrous things that God does, but through the incarnation. So that, that, uh, that, that for me really, really, um, it was a great takeaway, you know. And I guess for people listening to this, what are the questions that we're going to talk about for the next little bit as far as the, the, you know, the 13th century debate over, I mean, there's different ways of putting it or there are different, different aspects of this sort of, uh, I don't know, how, almost like an arena for, of questions mm-hmm. centered, centered mm-hmm. around, um, you know, the incarnation, why God would have become incarnate, would God have become incarnate where, you know, where, where sin not to have been in the picture. So, I guess could you give us sort of a, a bird's eye view of what's yeah. going on? Yeah, one thing I like to one thing I I talk about. And I don't. I think this is early in the book. I think this is a helpful way of thinking about it. Is that often in these questions you have a set of sort of like if you think about Russian nesting dolls, right? So you've got kind of like the big nesting doll and the smaller one, smaller one go inside, right? So certain questions will be kind of nested within other questions in these scholastic disputations. So if you think about, everyone reads Thomas, of course, think about how Thomas opens up the first question. uh, Is there an eternal law? Okay. It's usually, is there this, right? First question. And then it gets more and more technical from that, you know, more and more fine grained. The questions are sort of nested within that. He's constantly referring back to what he said earlier with the grander scheme of things. So when it comes to a question like the motive for the incarnation, uh, you really have several different concerns uh, nested within one another. And I think at the broadest level, the big concern is how do we reason about contingent divine action? That is to say, why, how do we understand the mysteries, um, things God does, especially things like incarnation, which we would never, uh, never suspect, you know, we would never rationally um, deduce that God was going to do this if we were kind of wandering around in you know, 50, 50 BC or something, or something, right? So those types of acts of God that, that we, that are not rationally demonstrable, uh, yet God does, and then sort of surprises us um, by divine power. How do we how do we hold those rationally? And that that's really kind of the big question. And then I think that qu- that big question gets sort of tested in a certain way when we come to a question like if if Adam had not sinned, would the Son have become incarnate? Because then you're reasoning about uh, two aspects of what God achieved in the incarnation, which you can uh, and how to hold them hold them in relation to one another. That's really the, those are really kind of the set of three questions I try to deal with. Right. So kind of just trying to think through, you know, not just God within himself, but God's actions outside of God's self is, you know, this is a way of thinking about that in the broadest sense. Right. Um, and, and you, you know, in, in the chapter that I looked at, you know, you mentioned gross tests in the beginning. Right. And, right. and a, a, a later problem that people have with his reasoning, at least is, is how I read it, is that he seems to at least impinge upon God's freedom. Mm-hmm. Or, or you know that could be an implication of his reasoning because he seems to suggest that incarnation is a natural. I mean, I guess you could say outpouring of who God is, right? Yeah, exactly right. That's right. So Gross attest. I'm, I'm sympathetic to Gross attest in many ways. Um, he he's he's an interesting figure. He's, he's at Oxford, you know, and he's sort of um, 
just speculating on this question. And, and the next thing you know, you know, it crops up a long treatise in, in his reflection on the cessation of the law. And so he just sort of puts his, you know, kind of puts his genius to work on the question and, and makes remarkable achievements actually um, uh, for his time. And I think what he's trying to do is, is d- follow deeper into the space that was opened up by Anselm of Canterbury when it comes to reflection on the incarnation. Um, and even the tone of his argument itself, he sort of, it's, it sort of says, you know, well, I come up with all these reasons, but you know, what do they come to? I'm not really sure, you know, at certain points. Um, it seems as if God would do this because goodness is of, of this sort of platonic idea. It's of, this, of, uh, of the essence, its essences to be self-diffusive. It gives itself. And so if God is perfectly good, God would be, you know, uh, perfectly self-diffusive, which would be to give God's self to a creature, uh, in, in the maximal way, which would be, of course, hypostatic union. Um, so I'm sympathetic to that argument, you know, but in its location and time, once that argument then comes to Paris, where you have uh, a far more sophisticated and, and um, dynamic conversation going on uh, after Alexander of Hells, then people start querying more, more intensely the, um, the question. And that's, what, that's exactly what someone like Albert worries about, is that there's a certain necessity to... Uh, these divine acts such that God sounds to be uh, indebted to the creature in a certain way. And that's exactly what Albert's going to be worried about. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about, you know, the type of writing that you did in this chapter um, is you seem to communicate effectively the perennial concerns present within these historical moments, um, which I find really invigorating. Because you're like in Oxford and you're in Paris and it's the 13th century and there's all these friars and then there's this, you know, gross test is who he is, which just seems to be idiosyncratic and um, in lots of ways. And then, you know, it starts to emerge into the 14th century. But to me, it still all matters. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that is that what you kind of, the sensibility you have as well? Exactly right. Um, in fact, I think part of the reason I wanted to write the book was because uh, – as I was reading along, you know, this question gets treated by everyone. Um, everyone has something to say about the motive for the incarnation. And typically, if you read 20th century treatments, uh, Protestant and Catholic, everyone, uh, they're going to say, I either take the Thomist position or the Scotus position. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, let's go. What, what, how did Thomas and Scotus's positions, how did they emerge in their context? You know, um, we know that Paris is a dynamic intellectual space and, and we know that the, the scholastic exercise of disputation, for instance, um, we always think of Thomas as sort of like this great, great deliverer of thought, but actually uh, so much of the, and of course he was, right? Obviously he was brilliant, but um, the, the whole institutional infrastructure surrounding him uh, made possible these types of achievements as well. So I wanted to kind of read them in that context is really what I wanted to do. And that, I was sort of surprised to realize that actually it's, it's later on that the, the hard lines between the Scotus tradition, Franciscan and Dominican traditions emerge. Um, but in the text themselves, really, we see them pursuing common ends. That's right. And I think that's actually really instructive for the present when we read these texts where someone wants to be a Scotus or be a Thomist. Um, I, I think the later traditions really do diverge in important ways, but, but to get clear on the sort of fundamental agreements about the question so that we can set out from that point uh, going forward is really kind of what I wanted to, want to do with this book, you know. 
Yeah, I love the. I would love to return to you know that that moment or or sort of that juxtaposition between Thomas and and Don Scotus or and and maybe how it gets solidified and ossified later. But I guess maybe we can we sort of set the stage by you know it's interesting you 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 sort of distill things down. You talk about the the hypothetical question mm-hmm. and then the primacy question, which and you make the case that the primacy question is probably the better one to ask maybe. Um, but could you address like what those two are and yes. how they're related and all? Sure. Sure. So, the, so I, uh, the hypothetical question is that counterfactual. If this happened, then that, right? It's hypothetical. In fact, Adam sinned, right? We all know this. Um, but if he hadn't, now you're reasoning hypothetically. Now, I think, I think Franciscans will be very insistent on this point, which is exactly right, which is that the hypothetical speculations are not, um, they're not, what people are interested in when they ask counterfactual questions are not necessarily what's going on in all these other possible worlds or something like that. They're, they're chiefly interested in when scholastics raise these questions, um, what this reveals about the order of the creation in our de facto or actual world itself. So we're not talking about hypothetical incarnations that are, that is the chief interest. It's this incarnation here. Um, but understanding how it's ordered in the divine intentions is really what we're interested in. So that's the hypothetical question. And that's why I say the primacy question is more precise because it, it is more precisely focused on the order of priority within divine intention in this de facto world. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's how I distinguish those questions. The primacy question is, which is prior, uh, God's will to become incarnate um, in Jesus Christ or God's will to redeem from sin, which of those two is, is, is logically prior. If you say the latter, like Thomas seems to suggest, then that means then that there would be no incarnation if Adam had not sinned. Right. And I guess maybe the, the what it, you know, or the so what question, why, why does this even matter? I guess. Um, I mean, I think it does deeply. Um, for you know a number of reasons, but you know why does this matter so much at the time and, and ongoing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, I think I've learned the hard way probably to say two things on this question on a question like this. The first one is this: we have to be careful not to cheapen um, a mystery like the incarnation by insisting on sort of uh, immediately applicable practical payout. Okay, there's something disordered about that, right? Um, the the good of contemplating the incarnation itself is potentially fruitful, um, you know, an infinite number of ways, right? And we may not even know what it is in, in, in our lifetime. Um, surely Scotus didn't realize that when he was, when he started asking questions about the predestination of Christ, that this would become such a fruitful uh, site for Franciscan speculation over time and Jesuit um, it, it, and sort of a kind of keep, key piece of Franciscan spirituality. In fact, if you talk to the Franciscans, they'll tell you this. So, you know, you have to be, you don't want to, you don't want to switch, you know, you don't want to uh, switch out the, um, you don't want to cheapen the good thing that is contemplation of Christ. Um, and I guess that's maybe my main, my main insistence at this point, which is it's, you know, the human mind um, has been graced with the opportunity to contemplate the mystery of the incarnation. Um, what a wonder, you know, what a wonder. Uh, and in fact, my experience has been, for what it's worth, that con- grace, careful um, spirit, spirit and uh, scripture and tradition guided contemplation of these mysteries um, 
is a means to transformation in the likeness and form of Christ, uh, which is what the gospel is really about. So, um, you know, give it some thought. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, you know, and I was struck reading, reading uh, your work that um, you, you mentioned at a certain point, you, you want to keep in mind sort of, you know, I'm putting this in my own words now, but sort of whomever, whatever thing you're addressing, that person's understanding of God, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's a lot of what's at stake. So kind of to your, I mean, just to add what you were saying, you know, it's our relationship with God that we're, we're, we're contemplating. Yeah. And it's not just sort of, you know, this, the, the negative vision of the scholastics that they're just sort of asking about angels on a, on a pinhead for its own sake, but that's not what this is. Sure. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, right. But that's right. I mean, I think it, it, it's this, this stuff is, I mean, an insight like Albert gives and then becomes, becomes central to the debates it is really spiritually essential, which is this, that whatever we think about what God has done in no way um, should we allow ourselves, should we, should we find ourselves thinking in a pattern where God is indebted to the creature um, and, and as he puts it, actually, um, there's that, it's interesting. Both both positions on the hypothetical question um, have these arguments where they say, "Well, it's more spiritually uh, nourishing and attractive to take this position." Mm-hmm. Okay. Why? Because because wow, what a marvel that the means whereby uh, God redeems us is to do something so so um, so remarkably, you know, unexpected. And, and actually, you know, maybe not even totally equivalent. And this is exactly what you get in the, sort of the happy fault tradition, right? Oh, happy fault. Oh, blessed. Oh, most blessed sin of Adam, as they say at the, um, at the Paschal, uh, um, you know, at Easter vigil, right? Yeah, right. Handle, uh, the deacon sings. Um, there's something spiritually nourishing there. Of course, on the other side, then they say, well, well wait a minute, you know, um, is that not to sort of think about divine action as, as if, um, as if the redemption from sin is a greater thing than the marvel of the hypostatic union itself, the, the wonder of God uniting um, the second verse of the Trinity being united in person to a creature. Um, so I think, I think, you know, you can start to see when you think about, Oh, that's what's at stake with a question like that. That's how you have whole spiritualities um, and traditions sort of emerging out of these orientations on a question like this. Yeah. And there, I mean, as you highlight, there's so many different ways of, of answering the questions and, and, and as you're saying, the Russian, Russian nesting doll um, has so many, you know, chambers, I guess you could say, but I guess if you, if you had to distill it down to the main points, why would someone hold that um, to the primacy question, right? That God first intends the glory of Christ. um, And then, you know, secondarily or in a tertiary sense, redemption from sin is necessary to provide for the, the greatest union possible between creature and creator. Yeah, exactly. Um, great question. I, I'm totally a scotist on this question, by the way. I mean, this should be obvious by now. Um, the uh, scotus's argument, which I find totally persuasive, is basically, look, if we're thinking about the ordination of God's will, the way in which God's intentions are ordered, um, what could be sort of the, the beginning of that? Okay. And he uses, it's, Thomas uses the same image. I was just looking, this is my second reference to the eternal law thing, uh, because I was looking at that. I think actually last night with a friend, um, Thomas's treatise on the law in the, in the Prima Secunda, question 90. Um, Thomas is always, when he thinks about the good and the order in, in, in um, given to creation, thinks in terms of, of the artist, right? 
who's who has a a, a goal in mind for that which the arts creates, and then things are sort of um, subsidiary things are ordered to that achieving that goal, right? When when the artist thinks that, but he points out, you know, the order of intention is the inverse of the order of execution, um, and so on. Thomas talks about this, but also Scotus brings this very same point up. Now, what does that mean? That means that um, when we're thinking about the order of God's intentions for actions in the world, they they are subsumed within a larger <clears throat> set of concerns, at the very top of which is God's own love for God's, God's self, which Scotus calls um, uh, divine glory or something like this, right? So at the very top, God wills himself. God loves, God loves himself. And, and then everything else is ordered based on its proximity to the divine glory, how close it is. And among things created, what is closest to, to, to God's glory? Well, of course, it would be um, Christ's human nature. Christ's human nature is the closest thing to the divine glory because it is united in person to one of the triune persons, um, is in fact uh, united to the Son. And so that has to be number the first thing intended. If God's going to intend a nature, a, a created nature, united to a divine person, that has to be the first thing um, in the order. And then everything else has to kind of come up, come after that, uh, including uh, the redemption from sin, also including um, the will to bring that nature to glory through hypostatic union, he thinks, is subsequent to that. So there's a whole sequence of, of, of orders of intention here, which is another way of saying uh, the value of Christ, the person Christ, far supersedes your and my redemption uh, as well. Does that, does that make sense? Um, and so our, our, our grace is always um, mediated through our attachment to this, this man. Right. Which isn't to diminish, you know, our value and dignity, but just to kind of prioritize. Uh, exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Right. Exactly. Given, given that, um, why, you know, have so many um, sort of dis- not dissented, but, uh, you know, argued against or, or declined to accept the SCOTUS reasoning. Right. Uh, I think, I think that, you know, again, some later debates, Thomas is really right. He does, he points out, he says, look, everywhere, the only way to know the divine will, the only, only way you can know God's reasons. Now, he'd never read Scotus's argument. Scotus writes his argument much later. No one is, has, has, uh, had, had conceived of Scotus's argument at that time. Uh, took the particularly subtle mind of, of John Dunn Scotus to come up with it. Um, so Thomas says, you know, he's in a context where there are lots of different arguments going around. They're debating this, debating this. But he says, look, one thing we know for sure, the only way to know the reason God does things, the reason for God's action is if God tells us, okay, that's the nature of divine reason. It is a mystery to us. And always and everywhere in sacred scripture, as he puts it, we're given one reason for the incarnation. And he points to first Timothy chapter one, uh, to verse 15, which says, um, uh, Christ came to save sinners. That's the reason. Always and everywhere in Scripture, he says, that is given for the incarnation. So, uh, for Thomas, I think it's just a it's a deep, um, deeply pious and 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 proper devotion to the revelation of Scripture itself, and then that as received in the tradition, and um, and also he's he's right that that insight has woven itself into the Christian tradition. As I said, the Paschal. Uh, the prayer before the Paschal candle says, "O oh, happy fault, O oh, blessed sin of Adam." 
Um, that tradition is, is old and venerable, and Thomas obviously knew it because he'd heard it, you know, as you have, I'm sure, every Easter vigil uh, prayed. So, so there's a, there's a, there's a bone for the for the Thomas. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, there, there's so much there. I, I um, when you read Thomas on this, it, it strikes me, you know, in contradistinction to his maybe uh, more rigid followers uh, in the present, um, how he's not dogmatic about it though i mean he mm-hmm. seems to sort of set the stage and mm-hmm. and finally he'd say well the testimony of scripture seems to say this um right. and that's and that's where we'll go if we can't sort of determine it in in other ways right so his sort of disposition is very interesting to me there it's so different than those that don't even really want to hear the scotus or the franciscan proposition because it seems to offend their their sensibilities so thomas and thomas i can't equate them uh, yeah, if you've read if you read the um, the, the uh, sentences commentary, it's even more interesting actually uh, because he, he I mean he even he even well so this is the, he ends with like the speculation about the an, an impassable the impassable flesh of Christ mm-hmm. an impassable incarnation at the end of that text of course you know it's not clear if Thomas wrote that or it was a later edition once um, once Scotus's specu- famous speculation about the impassable f- flesh of Christ was kind of on the table, then then well, somebody won't import that back into mm-hmm. into the sentences commentary. Um, I think actually it was original. To I, I argue in my text when I treat Thomas that that was original to the text. Probably um, can give reasons why, but in any event, you know he's very he's very Thomas. Thomas is like Bonaventure on this question. You know they're sort of they're sort of open minded. They consider a lot of options. Um, and then when the time comes to make a decision, they're, they're happy to make it and then, and then move on. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, Thomas, there's no way Thomas expected an entire tradition to sort of be devoted to him uh, into the 20th century in 21st century on this question necessarily. And in fact, my sense is, I mean, even in his own time period, um, I don't, I don't, Th- Thomas is the theologian who I, who I read most recent, most regularly and, and probably seek to emulate most deeply. But on this question, I mean, Bonaventure is just much better and much more carefully um, careful in weighing all the evidence, it seems to me. So, you know, I think, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. It wasn't, as I put it at the end of the book, it wasn't necessary that a Thomist and a Scotus tradition develop on this question. Right. We're entirely, what you have in the text themselves were, are entirely, to my mind, entirely, um, they're amenable to one another. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's striking, you know, someone like me reading, you know, as you come to that conclusion that to, to sort of set these two, you know, across the ring from each other is not just historically detrimental, but theologically as well. Right. Um, Yeah. I think, you know, I'm hesitant to, to make too much of this point because what I don't want to say is that there aren't later significant disagreements between um, someone like John Capriolis, for instance, um, and the Scotus tradition that emerges, um, the, the, those later debates really are substantive, and they do they do uh, there really does there really do emerge two rival traditions on this question eventually. Uh, it's just worth saying, I think that that it, not at the time of Thomas and Scotus had those two traditions developed. That right. Um, yeah. It takes the, it, it, I think it takes the genius of Scotus um, on this insight about thinking about the different insta- instancia, the different instances of reasons, um, to make possible the more technical and speculative debates about these reasons that you see in the later tradition. Mm-hmm. So 
So, you know, I guess I, giving you a little provocation and then, uh, and then softening it out a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you know, speaking of provocation and you've mentioned, you know, the exalted a number of times in the Easter vigil and um, it's really interesting to me. um, And given, given the quarantine, actually, my wife learned to sing the exalted this past uh, Easter, which was, which was great and phenomenal. Um, And I told her that we were, we were talking about this today and she's like, Oh, happy fall. And, you know, because it always kind of, yeah. it, it, it gets me. Uh, I'm of a Franciscan persuasion uh, generally and specifically here. But I remember leaving the Easter Vigil one year and coming up to the priest and how, you know, how beautiful everything was. I'm telling him, but I'm like, you know, there's this one sticking point and he's, well, he says, Lex Serendi, Lex Credendi. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're not getting that out of there. No, and, and nor would you want to. I remember, no. I remember a, a year or so back, um, I'm, I'm United Methodist, but we, we often attend, uh, attend, especially High Holy Days, the local parish. Um, and and I, I went to the Easter Vigil, took my sons, and this year we happened to have uh, a deacon who was a seminarian at the uh, Athenaeum of Ohio, which is mm-hmm. in Cincinnati, uh, a good friend of mine teaches there. And, um, and this, this deacon, had, he had the most beautiful voice. I mean, it, it was just you know, angelic. And he sang the Exalted, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I remember telling my, my friend after I was like, you know, man, up until this moment, I thought that whole happy fault thing was just ridiculous. But <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm starting to have some different, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not so, you know, this, uh, something about that uh, really, really, really compelling. Um, yeah, it's very poetic. I mean. Um, which is interesting to your earlier point, like both, you know, the various permutations of answers are saying, well, this is spiritually efficacious, right? And, and there is something there about, you know, even my, my biggest concern, not concern, but my biggest question to myself over this whole thing, given I'm of this Franciscan persuasion is, well, wouldn't it be just like the God revealed in scripture to foresee sin and be like, all right, I'm just going to go way beyond anything you could expect as far as your redemption goes. And that's super gratuity in the face of human misery. And I mean, that seems like, I mean, that's sort of like, um, that, 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 that's sort of the the challenge to my own thinking on this. That's, and that's fine. Like, you know, as you say that you can sort of, and Bonaventure and Thomas are doing this, right. They're like, they're setting the stage and laying out all the pieces. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and just trying to see things clearly. Um, Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. And that, you know, I think, um, I think the Thomas are right to kind of not let not let the Franciscans go on that issue. And one thing I tried to try to try to argue—I don't, I don't know if I argued this as compellingly as I could have—that um, I don't think that the claim that the Franciscans are the Christocentric tradition and the Dominicans are the sort of I don't know what you want to call Hamartiocentric tradition uh, obsessed with sin. I don't think that that uh, dis, I don't think that uh, plays itself out viewed comprehensively. I think that the, the Thomistic tradition is, is Profoundly Christocentric, um, it accords to Christ all the primacy, uh, all the, all the primacy it can. You know, um, mm-hmm. in this question, is it necessary in order to offer the famous Franciscan universal primacy of Christ? Um, I think the most even-headed Franciscan you'll read, uh, even in the 20th century, will will perhaps begrudgingly, but usually admit um, that that primacy is given. You know. Radical primacy, in fact, is given by the Thomistic tradition. So I, 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 I do kind of want to avoid those types of characterizations, which you sometimes hear. You know, sure. Unfortunate. Right. And even thinking liturgically, you know, um, 
to pit to you know to pit Dominicans and Franciscans against each other erratically is unfair. I mean, at the uh, you know transitus of Francis, you're going to ideally have a Dominican preaching, and and vice versa for you know the feast of Dominic with a Franciscan preaching. And yeah. uh, historical or not, the images of Dominic and Francis um, embracing is also yeah the right. ideal image. That's right, and you should be thrilled to have that in your church, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, don't don't want to make too much of the. Um, even though the, the debates are fascinating, um, yes. don't want to make too much yeah. of it. Well, I think, I think that, you know, there, it's, it's two things. It's, it's, it's recognizing that, but nevertheless sort of recognizing that, like when it comes to pursuing Christ, you know, you sort of twist sort of it down at your desk on these questions and you sort of mm-hmm. hammer out to the best of your judgment and you move, move on. And then, and that's what makes possible the emergence of, of a whole, you know, a, a whole, um, something like a Franciscan tradition, you know, making decisions on these questions, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, which again, I think are more than, I mean, as you've said, right, they're more than speculation. They're they're uh, really of the substance of one's relationship with God and others within the body. Um, so maybe, you know, just thinking of, you know, I said this earlier, and again, to, you know, again, to your credit, you did a great job of this showing, I think, contemporary relevance for this historical moment and you, and, and this chapter, um, Maybe I can just read this final sentence because I think it's a, a great summation, right? Uh, you say, in these debates, as in the reflections on the congruous reasons for the incarnation, faith seeks understanding, and the mystery of God's action in Jesus Christ is rendered more attractive, and thereby the hearts and minds of the faithful are strengthened. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great summation of why this stuff matters, not just to get the historical theology right, but in the present day. So, so why do you do you end this chapter this way? I mean, I thought it was a great way to end a chapter, but I was I was concerned. You know, this is an academic monograph, of course. I was like, are they going to edit this, this, that sentence out? Should I just take it out to keep a proper tone, um, to keep my sort of historical descriptive sense? So I left it in in the end um, because it's important to me to say. And I think if you read earlier in, the, in that chapter, I try to say. Um, so, so much about this is, and, and actually the book starts, the first figure treated at length is Anselm of Canterbury. And so I really want to say, look, this, this is all an exercise of faith-seeking understanding. Okay? Um, and figuring out how to orient oneself to a question is figuring out how to posture oneself from the position of faith, you know, as um, I was reading Benedict's Introduction to Christianity the other day, uh, figuring out how to stand in order to understand, right? And, and to reason in that mode, um, Benedict writes so nicely about. So, so I kind of wanted to end on that note, say, look, this is, this, is, um, this is what they've delivered to us, you know, very careful speculation. And actually, they, they, in my opinion, I, I, I'm, I'm, I continuously kind of work on this question in the, into, the, into the present, and I want to argue that, that um, clarify how it is that this spirit has been kind of lost. And actually, all the arguments and all these considerations that, that, sometimes crop up in our contemporary debates um, seem to have already been kind of, you know, meted out one way or the other. So that what I call the summative solution of the 13th century um, in Bonaventure and Thomas really, really is a way of sort of positioning oneself to a question in that mode of receptive faith, um, seeking understanding, which is a sort of speculative, speculative um, and contemplative mode of doing theology. And, uh, and aligned with, with the practice of prayer, for instance. So that's why I wanted to end it that way. You know, I just kind of wanted to, that was my quick jab at, so what, you know, why this yeah. matters. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is great. I mean, you know, to end with the hearts and minds of the faithful, you know, because this is obviously of the highest 
theological concern with the greatest speculative theologians of the 13th century and on, onward, and obviously as before and before that as well. But you know, as we've said a number of times already, and I think for you and I personally, right, this is something that influences how we understand God. And I think all of create my vision of creation yes. is tied into this. Yes. And you know, to conclude in my mind that Christ would have become incarnate regardless of sin suggests to me that the created order, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to articulate. I don't want to use the word positive because that's so, that's such a benign and, and vanilla word, but you know, in a way humanity and creation are charged with a great dignity prior to losing that dignity through sin, I guess, or, or the image of our goodness is first and foremost, just that good. And sin mars that, but that's not the first word nor the final word, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know if any of that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And then also that, that's right. You want to say something like that and you want to say, and, and that's entirely revealed uh, centrally in Christ, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's what the primacy of Christ allows right. you to say, you know, the, the, this tradition allows you to say. Right. Yeah. It, all according to an incarnational logic, right? Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah, thanks for thanks for closing the loop on. Yeah, yeah, no, my my right. open circle there. Um, That's right. And the uh, the other thing I think, as thinking more as you repeated my words back to me, I was remembering. Uh, I was really I was really moved by common um, reference to whether or not one's position accorded to the piety of the faithful. Um, commonly, that 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 language of the pietati fidei will show up in Albert. It's there in Bonaventure. You know, it kind of bounces around, and I think. I think that's kind of, I wanted to kind of nod to that uh, aspect of the question and the motivating concern um, around that, that, that uh, consideration in the, in the scholastics. I think that's also why, why I ended the, the book that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's great. And it's interesting. You know, you mentioned, we mentioned gross test and, and Alexander of Hales and, and how they seem to side on the, you mm-hmm. know, the positive, the positive side of the hypothetical question. And um, so it's, I think it's, good for the present day Christian to realize that these, what we have presently say 20th century onward, as far as like how we might answer this question is not what has always been. Um, Cause you know, multiple times I've mentioned this question to people and there's a sort of uh, cocking of the head and you know, well, of, of course it's for sin. There's no other option. Um, and so I think historical theology like you've done is so helpful, uh, not just in an academic sense, but just sort of, maybe even just giving us an ease with asking a question like that. And you make the point, you know, the speculative stuff isn't at the expense of our reliance and adherence to authority and tradition. It's right. just a different kind of question. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly right. It's, it's a question of, you know, what space is opened up by the authority and the tradition. Right? Yeah. 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 It's, it's the mind's conformity to the likeness of Christ, as scripture says. You know. mm-hmm. Bringing all thoughts captive to Christ is really what we're, Right. Let's have some thoughts and let's bring them captive. You know, kind of, yeah. kind of my, my way of looking at it. That's how I try to bring my onboard my students. You know, to these types of questions. I actually find my students love these types of questions, these super speculative questions. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're natively fun to play with. You know, intellectually, um, and I think I think that's actually a gift of the faith. The faith makes you hungry um, to bring what you've been given into what understanding you can have. You know, and so. Uh, Nothing like the classroom to kind of play that out. Thanks to Justice Hunter for his time and insight into the thought of John Dunn Scotus, as well as Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, and all the other medieval theologians mentioned throughout the episode. 
We even got Robert Gross attest in there. So please do check out Justice's book, If Adam Had Not Sinned, which again, uh, there's a link to it in today's show notes. And as I hope you could tell throughout our discussion, I find engaging with people like Justice very, very invigorating and enriching. It's just really enjoyable. So I'm certainly grateful for his generosity in speaking with me. And now after this episode, you should be readily equipped for the lull in conversation at the next party, brunch, or long line at the bank. Now you can just ask the room, if Adam had not sinned, would the Son of Man become incarnate? And after the terribly oppressive silence, you're now able to guide the discussion through all its twists and turns, and hopefully in the direction of a scotistic conclusion. In the next episode, we will discuss some philosophical and theological anthropology, that is, the ways in which we think of the human person as such, as a complete being. And everyday Catholic talk on these matters will mention the body, mention the soul, that they're somehow united. But not a lot of sustained thought is given to the nature of this composition, their relationship, and what it makes for the whole being. And if you look in the catechism, you might even read that the soul is, quote, the form of the body. Yet there is a whole backstory to a statement such as that, a development that begins way back in antiquity, that progresses on through the church's own theological and philosophical reflection, and then into the present day. So really, what we'll be looking at next episode is, get ready for it, hylomorphism a term that will make a lot more sense by the end of next installment's conversation. And we'll specifically be looking at the contribution John Dunn Scotus made to the development of this type of thinking, and finally, why it all matters for today. So if this episode was an exercise in speculative contemplation and theology, the next one will engage in some heavier philosophical lifting, which is very rewarding, and better than that, just good for its own sake. Until then, though, Let's continue journeying further up and further in.